The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. There's a big new overseas market opening up for rice growers. It's China. We have the details. A California farmer is battling for his rights to plow his land, and his court case against the federal government is going to begin soon. Well, maybe, unless he and his lawyers can convince the court to throw the case out. We'll tell you about this latest twist involving John Duarte and his wheat field in Tehama County. Another citrus tree has been found in California with the deadly citrus greening disease. We'll tell you where. And we find out what's happening with the Sacramento County Farm Bureau. Among other things, they're celebrating a milestone birthday. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Northern California farmer John Duarte, facing millions of dollars in fines for plowing a Sacramento Valley wheat field, is making an 11th hour bid for a dismissal of the federal government's high-profile case against him. Duarte's lawyers are claiming the case shouldn't be tossed out because the Army Corps of Engineers didn't have the authority to sue him in the first place. Only the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency could bring such a case, and the EPA chose not to do so, according to Duarte's lawyers. The filing comes barely just a couple of weeks before the case is scheduled to come to trial in U.S. District Court here in Sacramento. A federal judge has already ruled that Duarte violated the Federal Clean Water Act by plowing his Tehama County wheat field without a permit. The trial will be held on the government's demand that Duarte pay a $2.8 million fine, as well as pay millions in additional penalties as compensation for the damage allegedly done to vernal pools that served as seasonal habitat for plants and animals. Duarte, who also owns a major nursery near Modesto, told the Sacramento Bee that there hasn't been any damage. We did not deep rip. Our tillage was four to seven inches deep. And the vernal pools and all wetland features are still existing today in a healthy, biological, intact state as though they existed through many wheat crops before the one we planted in 2012. The case revolves around a controversial provision of the Clean Water Act known as WOTUS, Waters of the United States. The rule is supposed to protect navigable rivers and streams, but the government has been expanding the rule to cover wetlands that feed into rivers. And former President Obama expanded the rule in 2015 to cover even more territory. Theoretically, the WOTUS rule exempts ordinary farming activities that are established and ongoing. However, U.S. District Judge Kimberly Muller ruled last year that Duarte violated the rule because his Tehama County property hadn't been farmed in 24 years. It's very rare that you actually open a new market in the world. Besides Cuba, this is the last big one for us that we wanted access to. So in that regard, it it really is to work. Betsy Ward of the U.S. Rice Federation is referring to the recent announcement that the U.S. and China have signed a trade protocol that will soon allow U.S. milled rice into that market for the first time ever. This phytosanitary protocol has been in the works for over a decade. When they joined the WTO, they had to allow imports into China as part of their accession. But in order to do that, you needed to sign what's called a phytosanitary agreement or a protocol. This announcement really clears the major, major hurdle of getting the phytosanitary protocol signed and agreed by both sides so that we are now legally allowed to export rice into China. 
And although U.S. rice exports to China are now allowed, there are still additional steps before those shipments can take place. The Chinese, their phytosanitary officials, will need to come back to the United States. They were here on a tour a couple years ago to look at the mills and look at our facilities, but they're going to need to come back and reinspect. And once they verify that these mills are following the protocol, then we hope the trade will begin. However, our nation's rice producers and millers have worked with U.S. Agriculture Department staff the last two years to assemble a list of qualified exporters and in turn certify their compliance to the phytosanitary protocol once that was signed by both nations. Our mills are ready. They've already instituted the protocol over a year ago when we thought it might be signed back then. In addition, Ward and other members of the rice industry have worked with USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service to promote U.S. rice in China for over a decade in preparation for the arrival of these products in that market. We've been active in China and made contacts with the biggest importers, both the China state import agencies and then some of the private folks. So we know who the players are there. Again, what will be exported is milled rice under this agreement. No rough or patty rice. But Ward says that our nation produces plenty of long, medium, and short grain rice in milled and processed form for China's consumers, especially for their growing middle class. And while there's not an exact time frame yet when U.S. rice exports will enter the Chinese marketplace. In terms of how soon, it's our number one priority to sort of facilitate that and as quickly as we can. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Back in June, two federal agencies gave their blessings to the controversial project to build two water conveyance tunnels under California's Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. But opponents still believe that better options exist. That according to the Water Deeply newsletter. Critics of the Delta Tunnels project say a more aggressive groundwater recharge, along with other storage and efficiency projects, could reduce the need for the costly new conveyance system in the Delta. The State Water Resources Control Board reports that urban communities discharged 1.3 million acre-feet of wastewater into the ocean back in 2014. Improved treatment and reuse systems could recycle most of that water, lessening the need for the 4.9 million acre-feet that the Delta Tunnels Project proposes to deliver annually. A more controversial option to the Delta Tunnels Project is being floated about. Farms use about four-fifths of the water that passes through California's system of dams, pumps, and canals, and some policy analysts have suggested that farmers could use less water by growing less. One of the analysts is John Rosenfield, a conservation biologist with the Bay Institute in San Francisco. He says he would rather see farmers growing annual row crops like grains, vegetables, and melons instead of trees like almonds and walnuts. That's because trees, once planted, must be watered almost constantly, putting a great strain on Delta supplies. Rosenfeld told the Water Deeply newsletter that if farmers grew annual crops, they could fallow them in a dry year and the government could cut the farmers a check. Ag industry representatives told members of the House Ag Committee their thoughts on the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. NAFTA has been a godsend for U.S. poultry. That was Kevin Brosh with the U.S. Poultry and Egg Export Council. Witnesses Thomas Hammer of the National Oilseed Processors Association and Kendall Frazier of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association had similar messages. Do no harm to our current excellent export positions in Mexico and Canada. Please do no harm and do not jeopardize our access. 
Congress. Former Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack testified in his capacity as president of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. We need to preserve the reciprocal duty-free market access and opportunity that is presented. The only disagreement came from Reggie Brown, who spoke on behalf of the Florida Fruit and Vegetable Association. Fresh fruit and vegetable industry has been taking it on the cuff from the standpoint of unfair competition coming into the country. NAFTA renegotiation talks are set to begin next month. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Barley harvest is complete. Alfalfa fields are being irrigated, cut, and baled. Corn and sorghum for silage were still being cultivated and irrigated. The corn silage crop was in various stages of development from already tasseling to developing ears. The wheat harvest for grain is completed. Cotton continues to be irrigated, cultivated, and is growing well. Cotton was forming squares and blooming. Black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Mid-season peaches, nectarines, and plums continue to be picked and shipped to both domestic and foreign markets. Stone fruits continue to be exported. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit groves are ongoing. Valencia orange harvest is continuing primarily for the domestic market. Regreening was becoming more common due to the higher temperatures. Olives continue to develop. Table grapes are being harvested. Wine grapes were maturing well as irrigation continues. Walnut, almond, and pistachio orchards continue to be irrigated. Both mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in the orchards. New almond orchards are being planted. Pistachios are being fertilized, and the walnuts were sizing well. In Calusa County, the processing tomato harvest is ongoing. In San Joaquin County, the harvest is ongoing for cantaloupes, honeydew melons, watermelons, and fresh vegetable crops. The second planting of cantaloupe is underway for late summer and fall harvest. In Fresno County, harvest is ongoing for tomatoes with lower yields than expected. Onions and garlic were being harvested. Onion seed is being dried. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers were picked by certified producers and sold at the local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers are being harvested and shipped domestically. The sweet corn harvest is ongoing, sold at roadside stands and local farmers' markets. Melons were irrigated and prepared for the upcoming harvest. Low elevation rangeland continues as dry with conditions rated fair to good, but quality continues to decrease. Cattle are being moved to higher elevations, where higher elevations were providing more grass than in previous years. Feed costs for cattle remain high. Nursery shipments were slowing overall. Wholesale nursery shipments to Canada and domestic markets decreased due to the hot summer temperatures. Small amounts of citrus nursery stock continue to be sold. If you live in Sacramento and you don't venture much out of the city, you may be surprised to know that Sacramento County, this county, is the 25th largest agricultural producing county in California. We're talking wine grapes, poultry, grain corn, milk, Bartlett pears, and growing acreage in walnuts and almonds. And serving the county's agricultural community for 100 years now is the Sacramento County Farm Bureau. And we're talking to its executive director, Bill Bird. And Bill, talk a little bit about the history of the Farm Bureau here. Well, it's been around for 100 years. That's the, that, that, that is the big news. Um, one of the first things that I was very proud of to learn and, and that the Sacramento County Farm Bureau received an award for was 100 years of continued service to the Sacramento County community. And that started in 1917. The Sacramento County Farm Bureau is one of the very few farm bureaus across the state of California to be in continuous operation for 100 years. And we look forward to being in operation for another 100 years. 
as you mentioned, agriculture is still very big here. Um, a lot of the agriculture in Sacramento County is concentrated in two areas. That is the Delta area, which is far closer to your house than you would imagine. I was surprised to find it as close as it was. And, of course, in southern Sacramento County areas around Galt, those areas are also uh, heavily dependent upon agriculture. So it still has its roots here. As you mentioned, wine grapes are a very big crop. In fact, it is the biggest crop, almost $130 million worth of output, and uh, the overall output pretty close to $500 million every year. And the nice thing about this position in, 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 in representing Sacramento County agriculture and talking to people about Sacramento County agriculture is I get to dispel the notion that modern-day agriculture is corporate. And that is a mistaken belief. Most agriculture in California is still the family farm. It's still a family-run operation. It's families that have been here for tremendous long amounts of generations, six or seven generations. And they are committed to making the family farm work. They're not a corporation. They're a family. They've been here for a long time. They plan on being here for a lot longer. What are the issues facing Sacramento County farmers these days? I would think that the biggest issue that is facing not just Sacramento County, but all of the counties in the Sacramento, San Joaquin, Sacramento River Delta area, all five of them, would be the Delta Tunnels that the Department of Water Resources wants to place near Cortland and drain away water from a critically endangered habitat. We're talking about an area that is already critically endangered. These drains would drain water from the delta so it could be impounded further to the south. This represents a tremendous loss of water for not just agriculture in Sacramento County and the Sacramento River Delta, but for all residents in Sacramento County and those in the Delta regions. This will drop water levels in and around the Sacramento River area dramatically. It will have a negative impact on the Delta fish populations. Salt intrusion is already a problem in the Delta region. It gets a lot worse during the drought years. I heard from growers that I am personally friends with through the California Rare Fruit Growers Organization. They have plots of land near Cortland and other areas, and they were dealing with saltwater intrusion all the way up into Sacramento County when we were at the peak of the drought. That is a long way. The fresh water was ending pretty quickly, and you had the salt water coming in from the Pacific Ocean. Once that water gets too salty, the delta cannot be used for anything. The water cannot be used for irrigation purposes, and certainly it's going to have a, a negative impact on the crops that are grown in the delta region. It is much better for the water flows that come from the north, that come out of Oroville, that come down the Sacramento River, be allowed to pulse through the delta region so that we have a fresh water estuary, especially for our native fish populations, but also further into the um, Bay Area. Uh, the last thing that we want to see is the Bay become a saltwater bay. And right now they benefit from fresh water. Uh, if we see those drains go in, the saltwater intrusion is going to become such a big problem that 
we're going to have a huge environmental catastrophe at some point. Talk a little bit about the organization of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau. What is its relationship with the California Farm Bureau and, for that matter, the American Farm Bureau? The California Farm Bureau Federation and the American Farm Bureau are the political arms of the local grassroots organizations. These organizations were created specifically to look out for the interests of agriculture in both the state and federal levels. And it's, by the way, it's the grassroots organizations who are also looking out for agricultural interests on the county and city levels. So if something's going on in Sacramento County or one of the cities in Sacramento, it's usually the county farm bureau that's involved with that process. The California Farm Bureau Federation is focused on what is happening at the California State Capitol in Sacramento. So while the Sacramento County Farm Bureau may have a voice or a say on certain uh, things and see eye to eye with the California Farm Bureau Federation, there are times when the two organizations don't see eye to eye, and there's a reason for that. But that's why the California Farm Bureau Federation is there. It is in place to get the best possible representation for all of agriculture from the state legis- state legislature. Same is true with the American or the American Farm Bureau in that they are in Congress and they are lobbying on behalf of the uh, agriculture on a more national level, not just California, but all 50 states. So there are a lot of different things that are going on. Sacramento County is, of course, the grassroots representing the growers. The California Farm Bureau, state level, state capital, American Farm Bureau, federal level, federal level, and in Congress. The Sacramento County Farm Bureau really represents the grassroots. That's the everyday farmer. And by the way, you do not have to be a farmer to be a member of the Farm Bureau. You can own a one-acre lot. You can be growing a tomato plant in your backyard or a house plant in your apartment. And you, too, can qualify for Farm Bureau membership. And there are some nice benefits to that. You get some freebies here and there, some discounts at hotels. Uh, a lot of our families like the discount they get with feral gas. So they can save as much as 70 cents a gallon in certain types of the year. And I've been told that's one of the bigger discounts to Farm Bureau membership. But there's a lot of other things. But it's more than just the growers. It, certainly, the growers are a part of this. But it, it's really for anyone who believes in agriculture and the uh, importance of agriculture to California, the importance of agriculture to California families. If you support agriculture, we'd love to have you. Not only do you get to uh, uh, protect agriculture, and it it does need your protection, but it also gives you a chance to meet some of our wonderful farming families, and I know that they want to meet you too. So it's uh, it's a chance for you to, uh, to be a part of something special. It's a chance for you to meet the folks who put the food on your plates. Sacramento County farmers put the food on your forks. If Sacramento is the true farm-to-fork capital, Sacramento County growers are the people who put the food on your forks. If people want more information about the Sacramento County Farm Bureau, maybe they want members, want to know about the benefits, what's a good way to get in touch? There's a couple of different ways. We're available by phone call. We're a local phone call, 916 685 6958. We can also be reached by email, staff at sacfarmbureau.org. We are a not-for-profit organization, so staff at sacfarmbureau.org, or you can visit our webpage, www.sacfarmbureau.org. If you call, we will be glad to explain the membership options that are available to you. There are four or five of them. 
Um, if you email, we'd be certainly happy to send you that information as well. Or please feel free to visit our website where you can find all sorts of information, including, most importantly, since most of our fresh produce is coming into these farmers markets right now, you can get a good idea of where these markets are, what times they are, and the best places to visit for your fresh fruit or vegetable fix. SacFarmBureau.org is the website for the Sacramento County Farm Bureau celebrating 100 years of service this year for Sacramento County. Executive Director Bill Bird, thanks for a few minutes of your time. My pleasure, Fred. Thank you very much. Another citrus tree in California has been found with citrus greening disease, also known as HLB. It's down in Riverside County. HLB is a deadly disease for citrus plants that can be transmitted from tree to tree by the Asian citrus psyllid. Crews will remove and dispose of the infected tree, and they're preparing to treat citrus trees within 800 feet for Asian citrus psyllid infestations. The disease was detected in a CDFA sample collected July 10th from a grapefruit tree in a residential neighborhood in the city of Riverside. The bacterial disease attacks plants' vascular systems but does not pose a threat to humans or animals. The Asian citrus psyllid can spread the bacteria when the pest moves from one location to another, feeding on citrus trees and other plants. Once a tree is infected, there's no cure. The tree typically declines and dies within a few years. HLB, Huanglong Bing, the citrus greening disease, is known to be present in Mexico and in parts of the southern United States. Florida first detected the pest in 1998 and the disease in 2005. The University of Florida estimates that the disease causes an average loss of 7,500 jobs per year and has cost growers $3 billion in lost revenue in Florida since it was first detected there. Here in California, the Asian citrus psyllid was first detected in 2008. It's ironic the discovery should be made in Riverside. That area has a storied history of citrus production and is home to the California Citrus State Historic Park, which preserves the cultural landscape of the citrus industry and tells the story of the industry's role in the history and development of California. There's a book out called The Orange and the Dream of California, written by David Boulay. And it's an amazing book about the history of citrus in California. The citrus has had a big impact on the state for farming and for population increase. And this book has 176 full-color pages, more than 250 images. It's a fascinating story of the orange's impact on the culture, the historic, financial, and even the romantic history of California. And David Belay, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Fred, it's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. All right, let's talk about how the orange got to California. I have a, a, a sneaking suspicion it had something to do with the missionaries. It certainly did. There were no oranges in California until the Spanish brought them with them when they moved up from Baja, California to Alta, California in the late 18th century. The first orange orchard of any size was at Mission San Gabriel, and it was from those trees, uh, the seeds from those trees, that much of the early California citrus industry uh, got their got their plants. Do we know what, what sort of variety that was that they planted from seed? I do not know. It was uh, most certainly a sweet orange. As we all know, uh, citrus oranges uh, in particular come... Uh, in uh, a wide range of varieties from quite sour to uh, to very sweet and juicy and it, it was it was uh, one of the sweeter varieties now you mentioned that the missionaries brought it here from spain how did spain get oranges 
the the story of citrus is fascinating. Uh, all the citrus that we know today originated in Southeast Asia. It uh, came over to India, then to the Middle East. Uh, the Crusaders brought uh, citrus, oranges in particular, back to Europe, where um, uh, they were the exclusive property of kings and the wealthy. And in fact, it was a symbol. Oranges were a symbol of power. Louis XIV built a, a wing on his palace at Versailles uh, uh, to do nothing except grow oranges. It was called a, called a uh, orangerie, um, where uh, the big doors could open, and in the, the summer, the, the trees that were planted in huge pots could be wheeled out into the sunshine. And then in, in the um, in the cold French winter, they could be moved inside, but it was south-facing, so the oranges, the orange trees could still... Um, get the light they needed. And then Columbus, on his second voyage, uh, brought with him everything needed to establish colonies, including many varieties of citrus. And it wasn't long after that that oranges were growing wild uh, all along the rim of the Caribbean. Did Columbus bring seeds or did he bring the actual plants? No, he brought seeds. And in fact, when the when the Spanish came up into California, they did not bring plants. They brought seeds. So even though the first trees were planted in the, around 1800, the first fruit was not uh, picked and eaten for quite some time after that, because, because we, as we know, it takes uh, quite a long time for citrus trees grown from seed to actually produce fruit. So how was the migration of uh, citrus, the orange in particular, in California? I imagine uh, the missionaries, as they proceeded north, were planting uh, oranges as they went. Yes, that's right. As we all know, uh, California is, uh, is, uh, um, has the ability to grow uh, a wide variety of things and has a, a number of client, uh, or climates. And... Um, uh, in the early days, while everyone recognized that the potential was here to grow uh, for agricultural wealth, what exactly would be planted um, was open to experimentation and everything uh, from common things, crops like wheat, to exotic things like kiwis were tried. Um, but oranges uh, eventually, particularly when irrigation uh, was provided, uh, water sources, um, um, and the ability to ship fruit to large markets, because uh, in, the, in the 1800s, uh, uh, California's population was quite small, and really uh, there weren't enough people here uh, to sustain a, a, a large uh, citrus crop. But once uh, the growers learned how to pack and ship fresh fruit thousands of miles, then that opened up a tremendous potential, which... Uh, encourage more people to plant uh, more uh, acres of citrus. Now, not too far from us here in Sacramento, over in the Winters area, there is the Wolfskill uh, fruit tree, I guess you'd call it experimental station, where they have hundreds and hundreds of different fruit trees. William Wolfskill uh, was part of uh, that expansion, that migration of the orange uh, to back east via the railroad, wasn't he? That's right, Fred. Uh, as with many things in California, it took an immigrant to uh, to see the potential. Uh, William Wolfskill was from Kentucky. He was uh, his family lived near Daniel Boone. He came across the Santa Fe Trail as a mountain man, landed in California in the 1830s. Immediately saw the potential. He married here, uh, started to buy land, um, and uh, he had the first commercial. Uh, orange orchard in all of California. 
And while others, uh, he, he grew other things, grapes and a, a variety of things, but he alone saw the potential of shipping his fruit to bigger markets. And for him, that was San Francisco in the gold rush. And he became very wealthy um, by uh, shipping his fruit north. Uh, then his son um, later was the first to successfully pack and ship uh, California oranges to the east. I take it then that uh, Wolf Skill's original orchard was in Southern California? Yes, it it was near what today is Fifth and Alameda Streets in downtown Los Angeles. <laughs> and how long were there commercial citrus orchards in the city of Los Angeles? There was a time, uh, and not too far, not too long ago, when um, there were um, citrus orchards across Southern California and. Uh, all the way up uh, into Tulare County, where even today in Exeter and Porterville, uh, there's still uh, extensive uh, growing of citrus commercially. But but in the late 1800s, in particular in the early 20th century, while there were certainly commercial growers, uh, a great deal of the of the growing uh, commercial growing was uh, done by private individuals with uh, maybe just a hundred trees. And uh, these orchards would be owned by shopkeepers, uh, teachers, uh, other working people, and it was used as a way to augment their income. As I go out and I speak and I research my book, uh, over and over and over again, I, I was told stories by people who, um, that uh, when they were young, they could open up their window and they would smell the the uh, wonderful fragrance of orange blossoms, and that just permeated much of Southern California, and it became something that um, drew tourists as well. It was so unusual that there could be a place where in the winter, fresh fruit could be flowering and growing, um, and in addition to that, wonderful aroma. We're talking with David Boulay. He is the author of a beautiful book called The Orange and the Dream of California. Oranges, as you might surmise, got here via the missionaries. But how did other citrus crops get to California? That's a very interesting story. And it took the efforts of a very hardy band of pioneers, didn't it, David? That's correct, Fred. Uh, the uh, the people that uh, moved here originally to, to start a commercial citrus enterprises, most of them had no agricultural background. They were people, uh, they were uh, had worked in the law, in medicine, and been successful in business, and they moved to California for their health. And when they got here, those uh, same attributes that had helped them succeed in those other fields made them very open to experimentation and to cooperation with each other. Uh, while many, most of the trees that were grown in the mid-1800s were with descendants of the original trees that the Spanish brought, uh, these new California residents um, understood that uh, there might be other varieties that could be grown more successfully. And so they scoured the world for different varieties and of course the famous story is is the one of the Washington what we can now call the Washington Naval that was uh, sent by the US Department of Agriculture to a woman in Riverside she planted them in her front yard watered them with her dishwater uh, history now says and uh, from those two trees every single Washington Naval tree in the world is a direct identical descendant yeah, let's talk a little bit about that woman that would be Eliza Tibbetts she was a remarkable um, person. She was uh, very much of her time and kind of, uh, but also uh, a, a, quite a visionary. She and her husband, Luther, 
moved here in the uh, 1870s. They were part of a number of uh, idealistic people who were looking to move to California to better themselves and and uh, live a more um, abundant life. Uh, before that, she was uh, married three times, divorced twice. Uh, she had been a practicing spiritualist in New York City. She had attempted with Luther to uh, establish a utopian community in post-Civil War of Virginia. She had adopted an African-American child. All of this before she ever moved to California. But when she got here, she wrote to uh, a friend that she had that worked in the U.S. Department of Agriculture and asking what he might suggest that they grow on their small parcel of land in the Riverside area. Just so happens that he had recently been sent from Brazil uh, a number, uh, a variety of tree uh, of a seedless orange that was particularly large, useful, colorful, uh, attractive. And he sent her two, two uh, grafted examples. She and Luther, her husband, drove 30 miles. It took them three days from Riverside to downtown Los Angeles to pick up their, their two little trees. They soaked them in buckets for a couple of days and planted them. And uh, eventually, as I said, those two trees became the parent trees of all the Washington navels that we now enjoy. We touched on the sizzle of the appeal, if you will, of the orange to people back east. And it was rather fortunate, too, that uh, the orange uh, took off in Southern California, the home to Hollywood. And that had a lot to do with attracting new immigrants to California, didn't it? It sure did. There was a um, selling oranges sold California, and selling California sold oranges. So um, the the railroads uh, at the time uh, used uh, many uh, very attractive um, images of California, where you see the snow-capped mountains, a beautiful sky, an attractive home, a manicured orchard. And it was a very compelling image, uh, I think, to people who were in the snowbound east, uh, in the in the winter months, and um, then on the other hand, Sunkist uh, very very successfully uh, used the images, uh, those same type of idealized images, to promote uh, California oranges to people who, at that time, had never many many Americans had never seen an orange. Oranges were very exotic, quite expensive, um, and. Um, so it was a symbiotic relationship between the beauty of the orange, the beauty of California that attracted uh, attracted tourists, attracted residents, uh, sold oranges in the east. Yeah, that, interesting you should mention the promotion of it. Uh, and if you mention the name Don Francisco to people nowadays, they think of the uh, former host of Sabado Gigante on Univision. But, <laughs> but, but this Don Francisco actually was sort of an early advertising guy who uh, hopped on the orange train. That's correct. He was um, um, uh, quite a brilliant marketer. Uh, he was um, he ran the Sunkiss advertising in in its uh, most um, in its, very early on and through its most uh, impactful period, and um, uh, implemented even invented uh, many of the uh, kinds of marketing that we now take for granted today, uh, including what today is called integrated marketing, which simply means that you are trying to get your product noticed across in a, in a variety of ways. So you use advertising, you use store promotions, you have um, special offers. And one of his most successful was um, at the time, all the oranges that were packed in California were carefully wrapped in tissue paper and then uh, by a prescribed method 
put in uh, the orange crates, and it helped keep the oranges preserved when they had to go several thousand miles uh, to get to other parts of the country. Yeah, the, there, well, was, there was no refrigeration then, was there? There wasn't. Uh, uh, the refrigeration came and uh, started in about the 1880s, but before that, 1890s, but before that, uh, they were unrefrigerated cars. And Don Francisco was... Uh, was brilliant because they couldn't mark the oranges. They All these uh, tissue wrappers were marked with the Sunkist logo. Well, some uh, retailers would uh, remove those tissues and put them on inferior oranges uh, so that people thought they were buying one quality and they maybe were buying another quality. So to give those those wrappers value, uh, Don Francisco came up the idea, with the idea that a dozen wrappers and 12 cents mailed to Sunkist you could get a uh, a lovely orange themed uh, spoon that was uh, because in those days people mostly ate uh, the oranges because they were so expensive. They sliced them up, they shared them with other people, and you ate them with a spoon. Well, the uh, promotion became so successful that in just a few years, Sunkiss became the largest seller of silverware in the world. They were getting uh, five thousand requests for these spoons a day. It was just a remarkable uh, success. If you're over a certain age and you lived anywhere near a citrus grove, you probably recall the aroma of smudge pots on a frosty morning. <laughs> you don't see much yeah. in the way of smudge pots anymore. Tell us a little bit about smudge pots and, and then basically how they saved the orange industry. Yes, well, as, as we know, uh, California has a celebrated Mediterranean-like climate in, in many areas. But um, even in Southern California, uh, at times of the year, uh, the temperature can drop to below freezing. And in 1883 and then again in 1913, there were two uh, record cold spells. And um, at, that, at that time, citrus um, was the second largest revenue generator in the state, only behind oil. So it was very important to do everything that was possible to save the crops and save the trees. And oil was inexpensive at that time, and so these smudge pots were uh, developed. They're orchard heaters uh, made of galvanized tin. Uh, crude oil was put in, and they, um, when it was predicted that the temperature would grow, uh, go below freezing, Every man, woman, and child uh, in the orange-growing areas was uh, marshaled to uh, put out the uh, the smudge pots, keep them fueled, keep them lit. Other people were making sandwiches and hot coffee. It was a, a, a really a monumental undertaking. And one of the interesting things, I think, about all of this is the industry was so important that during this period, the fruit frost war, uh, service would interrupt the national CBS radio broadcast. Uh, can you imagine that? That's like uh, breaking into 60 minutes with a lo for a local, um, a local weather forecast, but it was very important. And so a gentleman named Floyd D. Young, who worked for the U.S. Weather Bureau, would come on and he would say, this is the fruit frost service. The temperatures in the following areas will be below freezing. Anaheim, 26 degrees. Covina, 23 degrees and so on. And many, many people throughout all of the orange-growing areas would tune in to hear that because it was their early warning system to get out and get busy and do what they could to save their livelihood. Uh, the fact that that announcement was taking place on a 50,000-watt radio station in Los Angeles, KFI, would mean that just about any citrus grower in California could hear it at night. 
That's correct, Fred. That's an important uh, note uh, uh, that uh, KFI was one of the earliest uh, radio stations uh, in uh, Southern California, and it was, as you said, uh, a very powerful station with uh, with uh, a great reach. And the smudge pots were around till after World War II, weren't they? They were. Uh, there were um, uh, many other um, methods tried to, for keeping um, the orchards uh, above freezing, uh, the spraying of water, large fans, and those eventually uh, came to dominate. Uh, and then there was the issue of uh, air pollution with the smudge pots. So um, in about uh, 19... Oh, in the late 40s, smudge pots were outlawed. You can still find them around at, at uh, swap meets and, and other places. And in fact, the California Citrus Historic Park, as you drive up to their museum, has converted uh, smudge pots into uh, light fixtures. Where is that museum? That's in Riverside. It's attached to uh, the University of Riverside, University of California at Riverside. It's a wonderful place to visit. It's got a uh, a small but uh, very nicely done museum that tells the history of citrus in California, and as well as uh, the agricultural school there has um, uh, many, many acres of citrus planted with uh, a large number of varieties. It's an excellent book, The Orange and the Dream of California by David Boulay. And David, I appreciate spending a few minutes with you talking about the history of citrus in California. Fred, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com.